So imagine being convicted of committing a crime that you didn't commit. Being convicted of a crime you didn't commit is the stuff that, for me, bad dreams are made of. But the Apostle Paul is not dreaming in Acts chapter 24 when he is being accused and on trial for committing a crime punishable by death, a capital crime, a capital offense. Can you imagine? They're going to put you to death. And you didn't even come close to committing the crime. As a matter of fact, you were committed to something else. You were committed to helping people with their greatest problem and telling them about hope. And now all sorts of people want to have you executed. Well, that's what happens in Acts chapter 24. We're going to look at it. It doesn't sound very hopeful, but it actually is because it gives the Apostle Paul a good opportunity to defend the legitimacy of Christianity against at least some really bad arguments against it. So here he is defending what you believe if you're a Christian, not against every objection, but some common, at least first century objections that are still around today. And so it's good for us. He's going to stand trial. He's going to be there and he is going to not defend himself, but he is going to defend the legitimacy of Christianity from a biblical perspective. So that's what we're going to do this morning in Acts chapter 24. If you're a note taker, we can see it unfold in three phases or four phases. Well, I think I'll have it unfold in four phases. It's not really pertinent to or necessary to understanding what's going on. But that's what we're going to do in Acts 24. We've been studying Acts as a church. That's why we're in the 24th chapter today. And I'll say this before we dive in. Um, Here's something I like to do. I like to study the passage. I don't, I, I like to study it all on its own at first and then, you know, original language things and then read commentaries that I appreciate and have benefited from. And then maybe let's say on Saturday, you know, if it's nice weather, which we don't have in Nebraska this time of year, but if, if we did, uh, to go on a bicycle ride and listen to maybe, uh, some good sermons from some faithful, uh, expository preachers and what, what did they do with Acts 23? What did they do with Acts 24? And just kind of mull it over in my mind. And it's kind of fascinating lately when I've gone to look where I, I like to go to monergism.com sermons. I can just Google search monergism.com, Acts 23. That was last week and there's hardly any sermons. You know, if it were Matthew 1, there'd be tons of them. Uh, if it were Matthew 28, there'd be tons of them. Acts 2, tons of them. Acts 1, tons of them. Acts 23 last week, not very many. Because it's hard to preach. There are all these details, historical narrative. It's kind of interesting. But how do you actually preach a sermon about this? Well, preachers like me don't really want to. But what am I going to do last week? Say, well, we're going to quit the book of Acts because it doesn't really preach. I'm thankful to be at a church where you'd say, that doesn't fly, pastor. We, we want to hear the whole thing. And we're also expecting you to make it interesting. Well, thank you very much for the pressure. Um, it's why I'm in counseling. <laughs> so, but one good thing is it causes you to pray, causes you to work harder. And typically what I'll do, like I did last week, we looked at the historical narrative and it's interesting, but I found one important thing to focus on. So last week we focused on the resurrection. And so we took some extra time because that was in there and that's really important. And I don't think that's cheating. 
Um, it's just going to really focus on one particular aspect as we work through the historical narrative. It's the same in Acts 24. So today in Acts 24, it's interesting, interesting historical narrative, uh, but we're going to have to focus on something that happens that really stands out, let's say, theologically, that's still relevant and pertinent to us because we're not living in the first century under Roman arrest. Uh, we're not the Apostle Paul. Today we're going to focus on things like law, preaching the law, what God requires, and preaching the gospel, what God provides, because that's something we're still supposed to do. And that's something that the, the, the Apostle Paul does rather wonderfully in Acts chapter 24. So I'm telling you my secrets, um, but we're not going to skip Acts 23. We're not going to skip Acts 24. We're not going to skip any of it. But we might focus on particular things as we go through here. So the first phase here, this is the Apostle Paul on trial. He's just gone to Caesarea or Caesarea, named after Caesar from Jerusalem. And here he is facing these Roman, this Roman imprisonment because of the Jews, actually. First phase, here's the charge, here's the accusation. If you would, look with me at Acts 24, verse 1. And after five days... Under arrest, the high priest Ananias came down. He came down from Jerusalem to Caesarea with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor, that would be Felix, their case against Paul. So they come and they come with a, with a special, articulate, good arguer, our uh, attorney. They come with a hired gun. Right? Let's, let's pick someone who is eloquent, articulate, and who can represent us well. This man here named, it says, a certain Tertullus. That probably tells us something about how they really, really want to make sure they win. They really want to make sure that the Apostle Paul gets silenced and snuffed out and executed. So let's make sure we have a hired gun. Let's get the best of the best. Let's get this guy named Tertullus. Then verse 2 says, and when he had, when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. So he's accusing Paul, but he's standing before Felix and standing before Felix, notice the formality, saying, since through you, since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace. What does Rome want? Rome wants peace. They want to keep the peace, right? They want to have their subjects under control, relatively happy. And we just want you to know, we want you to know under your rule, Felix, it's been really wonderful for the Jews. You have kept the peace. We've enjoyed much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. So here Tertullus has flowers coming out of his mouth, okay? And and it's right to show respect. Paul's going to show respect. But when you compare what Tertullus does with what the Apostle Paul does, as far as a legal formality, you know, your honor, kind of things that we still do today, there's no doubt that he's he's landed on real thick, Um no doubt whatsoever. All I had to do was kind of offer some interesting inflections and some of you were chuckling. Felix was no peach, okay? We learned about that last time. Antonius Felix had a, a reputation for being a tyrant, for being cruel and uh, filled with, with 
lustful passion for power and blood. Okay, so the Jews don't really feel that way about him. But they want him to rule in their favor. So here we go. And here's going to be the charge of, of, of trying to overthrow the government, of, of trying to upset what the government is doing. Sedition, we might say. So here it is in verse 5. As for Paul, it says, For we have found this man a plague. And what do you do with plagues? You, you, you spare nothing. Whatever, you, whatever it takes, you got to stop this. This man is a plague. One who stirs up riots. He's an insurrectionist. Remember in verse 2, uh, Felix, you've kept the peace. And then that, that's what you've been sent here to do by Rome. You're a peacekeeper. You're a peacemaker. You've done such a wonderful job. And here's this guy who's so terrible, he stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. And, and is a ringleader of a sect, a cult, this strange little group, the sect of the Nazarenes. So Judaism is not the Roman religion, obviously, but they are Roman approved. But this guy, he, he might say he's Jewish, but he's from, from the sect of the Nazarenes. Remember Nazareth, two, three, four hundred people in the first century. It's Nowheresville, but that's where Jesus is from. We know that. It's where Jesus grew up anyway. Acts chapter two, verse 22. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, not to mention the gospel accounts. So you can see what's happening. I don't need to do much more explaining in verse 5 what this attorney is arguing regarding the Apostle Paul. I mean, he is a bad person doing bad things, not part of a legitimate religion, plague at all costs. You you got to take care of this guy for us. You'll be doing your good job of peacekeeping, most excellent Felix. Felix. Okay, let's move on. What's more is, in verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple. So not only is he a Roman problem in a certain sense against the government, he even, he even tried to profane the temple. Notice, but we seized him. You know, we, we did take care of that. We're, we're, we're doing the right thing. To profane the temple, you may or may not know that that also would have been against Roman law. Which might seem kind of weird at first because why do the Romans care about the temple? Well, again, because they want the Jewish people to be happy. Not only that, remember, the temple at this point in time is not the Solomonic temple. It's which temple? It's the Herodian temple. Herod, King Herod had this temple built. And, and King Herod didn't do it for religious reasons. King Herod did it for political reasons. Okay? And the temple is a huge, extraordinary, big deal. And so in, in, in Rome, it's got Rome's stamp of approval on it, right? And so if he goes against the temple, yes, that's Jewish sacrilege, but it's also a major, major Roman problem. Okay? Got all kinds of notes here. I won't read to you about the Herodian temple. I'll give you one fun fact that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, they began working on it under Herod's, um, the Herodian temple, 20 BC. It was fully operative in 10 years. So it was, it was operative at this point in time. But how about this? I didn't know this before. I didn't double check it, but a pretty trustworthy source tells me it wasn't completed until AD 64, only six years before it was destroyed by the Romans. They're, they're still tidying it up. They're still finishing things. 
but not right now maybe, but get online and look at some of the things that are true about the Herodian temple. Yes, it was destroyed, but you can now go underground and see some of the underground framework or footings or whatever it's called. It's extraordinary. It's magnificent. I'm no big fan of Herod when it comes to religion and ethics, but I'm a fan of Herod in the sense that the dude is an egomaniac. The dude built some cool stuff. Amazing, extraordinary, profound. That's why some of it still stands today. So all this to say, the apostle Paul, he's terrible because he creates riots and he doesn't keep the peace and he defiled the temple, which is horrible against Judaism, but it's actually also horrible against Rome. Kill this guy, put him out. We need to get rid of him at all costs. He's the worst sort of person. Verse eight says, by examining him yourself, Felix, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. We know you're as smart as we are. And if you're as smart as we are, right? It's just leading him somewhere. If you're as smart as we are, we know that you are. You will conclude this. Verse nine says, the Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. So examine him. Well, the last time he was examined, He was examined by flogging, at least in chapter 22, verse 24. They're probably hoping that happens. So they want stability. They want society to be stable. They know Christians are not good because they're against the government. Christians are against stability. Christians are against peace. Christians are against Judaism. Christians are, they know these things are true. But are they? But are they? Okay, Paul's turn to speak. Stop this guy. He's a plague of a man. Paul's turn to speak. Next phase, phase two, the defense or the response. Verse 10 says, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Felix gives Paul the nod. Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have, maybe I should read that differently. Knowing that for many years, formally addressing um, the ruler, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So there's respect, there's formality as would be fitting, but he doesn't have flowers coming out of his mouth. But do notice he does say, you, you've been at this a long time. You know something about history. You know something about what has happened. You know something about what hasn't happened. And I'm really glad because it should help you to be objective as to what has transpired here. Your longevity should only support my defense. How about verse 11? You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to, notice this is an important word, worship, also more important words, in Jerusalem. So in verse six, he's been accused of profaning the temple, of defiling the temple. And Paul says, well, that's interesting because you yourself can find out and verify that I just went to the temple and I just went to the temple to do what? To worship. So that would be, that's contradictory to what they're accusing me of. I didn't go to do anything bad. As a matter of fact, I went there to worship. Those, one of these things just doesn't belong here. We're going to see in just a little while, but maybe just as a preview, just a sneak peek in verse 17, he, he refers to it as my nation to present offerings. So 
There's, there's zero actual evidence, Paul is saying, that I'm against our fathers, that I'm against our nation. I'm not against Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not against our heritage. I'm not against the temple. I wouldn't have been going there to worship. This makes zero sense. It doesn't measure up with the facts is what he's saying. I'm not anti-Jerusalem. Verse 12 says, and they did not find me. They did not find me when they were there, when I was there just not long ago. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or, he's going to add to it, so while we're at it, or in the synagogues, or in the city. Neither can they, notice, prove to you what they now bring up against me. There's zero legitimate support. In fact, the exact opposite is true. And now the shift from denials to an admission. (gasps) He's going to make an admission. Here it is. He uh, he is going to confess to something. Verse 14, look there. But this I confess to you. If you're looking for an admission... For me, here goes. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, Christianity and Christians, because they're the followers of the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, John 14, 6, according to the way, which they call a sect, they call it a cult, they use the derogatory, the negative word. I just want you to know this. This is actually a great setup here. That Which they call a sect, according to the way, which they call a sect. How about this? I worship the God of our fathers, the God of the Old Testament. Christianity is not contrary to Old Testament, as a matter of fact. I worship the God of our fathers. So the way, the ones who follow Jesus actually worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true and living God, Yahweh. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything. As a Christian, I believe everything, everything. How else can I say it? As a Christian, I believe Everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Christians don't think the Old Testament is bad. Christians don't think that the God of the Old Testament is a different God. As a matter of fact, he says, I worship the same God as a Christian. Right? Some Christians are confused about this. Even supposed Bible-believing Christians are confused about this. He's saying... The Old Testament is a Christian book, right? It anticipates Messiah. It's all about him. As a follower of the way, I believe, let me do it again, everything in that book. I'm not anti-Old Testament. As a matter of fact, as a Christian, I am super duper, uber, extraordinarily. What other words can I use? Pro-Old Testament. I'm not anti-Yahweh. I'm pro-Yahweh. I'm not anti-Old Testament. I'm pro-Old Testament. Of all people on planet Earth, I am pro-Old Testament because I'm pro-Messiah. I'm pro-Christ. That's what he's saying. He's not a Marcionite, to use a later heresy. Okay, Later, the Marcionites, you might read it as Marcionites. Um, the Marcionites, they, they, they reject the Old Testament. They have two different gods. It's a heresy. He's, so I'm getting my history backward, but I'm doing it on purpose for effect. No, I'm not a Marcionite. I believe, I believe it's all God's word. 
Christians of all people should believe the Old Testament. It's patently true because we see Christ as the one who fulfills it as the centerpiece of the whole thing. Just so you don't think I'm like making things up. Multiple commentators. The Old Testament, Paul claims, was a Christian book. That's what he's doing here. And guess what the law and the prophets talk about? Let's keep going in verse 15. I believe what all that they say. And guess what they talk about? Having a hope in God in verse 15. And we learned about that later. That hope in God. Remember in chapter 23, verse 6. That's, that's resurrection. To have hope in God is to have a hope of the positive resurrection, eternal life. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, and I wrote in my margin, in theory anyway. Remember, that was last week in chapter 23. If you weren't here, we'll all wait while you quick download the episode. No. It's building on that argument, right? The Pharisees, the traditionalists, the ones who believe the Bible is true in chapter 23, they believe in the resurrection. They believe in the hope of the resurrection. And so Paul's saying, why am I on trial for preaching resurrection? It's in your Bible of all things. And so here he says, they believe it too, at least in theory. Paul's actually saying, I don't just believe it in theory. I'm proclaiming it. It's through the Messiah. And so it says, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. I'm not anti-Jewish. That there will be a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. We talked about Psalm 16 last week. We looked at other passages. Now it's kind of, the plot thickens a little bit though. Christians talk about the hope of resurrection because we're talking about the resurrection of the just in Christ, the righteous in Christ. But here he actually introduces the negative side of it. Everybody's going to be raised. Those who are united to Christ by faith will guaranteed resurrection unto life eternal. But there will be a resurrection of the unjust for judgment, which leads to condemnation. And he's going to build on that a little bit, a little bit later. Maybe a good reference, if you want a reference for this, it would be Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. So there's, there is a resurrection that has no hope. Christians have a resurrection that has hope. It's resurrection life in Christ. But there is a resurrection that's not hopeful. Daniel 12, 2 says this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. That's the focus of the New Testament. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. Judgment day is coming. You need to trust in Christ for righteousness so that you can have a resurrection unto life. But if you don't, you'll be resurrected. According to Daniel, for everlasting contempt. This is why 1 Peter 3.18 is important. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us to God. To make us alive in the spirit. It's interesting what he's arguing here. But in theory, going back to our text. Theoretically, he's saying, okay, these Pharisees who want me executed. Remember the Sadducees deny the resurrection. They're sad, you see, right? No hope. That was last week. But he's saying, you know what? By and large, they're Pharisees who are against me. And they believe the same theology I believe. But maybe they don't really believe it. Why am I on trial? This is not just. Okay. 
We should keep moving. Okay, verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I'm going to ask you to look at it again and, and, and pose the question, why does he put that in here at this point in time? So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I think it's a great principle. It's a great idea. It's a great concept. We could isolate it and take it out of context and it would be good and true. But in the flow of things, I think it's in the context of this is why he preaches the truth about resurrection. He's on trial for preaching the truth about resurrection. I preach the truth about resurrection because you know what? I want to have a clear conscience before people. I ha- I told you the truth. I want to have a clear conscience before God. I-, I-, I told them the truth. Because if you don't tell the people the truth they need to hear for their safety, their eternal safety, how could you have a clear conscience? In context, I think that's a better way to interpret it and understand it. It would be wrong for me to not tell people about the need for resurrection in Christ. It would be wrong for me not to tell people if I knew. I know people think it's mean-spirited. Now think about people, think about our day, right? People say, couldn't you just only ever say the positive stuff? Well, we could, but we wouldn't have a clear conscience before God. There's a coming resurrection of the just and the unjust, and that means you've got a huge problem, and so do I. That's why you need a sin bearer. That's why you need a perfect substitute, Jesus Christ the righteous, because if not, there's going to be hell to pay. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very nice. Well, it doesn't, you know, it's an old illustration, but I'll use it. It doesn't sound very nice when your neighbor is pounding on your front door, screaming, throwing bricks through your window to wake you up because they see the flames. And you say, that's not very nice. I'm going I'm to have a whole life of counseling to get over this. They were, they were doing what was necessary. How could they have a clear conscience when they saw the flames in your house? And they're like, oh, you know, let's just let people go because it might offend them. And then you all burn up and die. How could they have a clear conscience at your funeral? They didn't do anything to help you. You see, Paul's saying, I preach what I preach. Resurrection of the just and the unjust. Because I know it's what's true before God. I want to have a clear conscience before him. I've been called to represent him as an ambassador. And I've been called to love my neighbor as myself. It's why I preach the way I do. I hope it's true for us too when it comes to the gospel. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have a clear conscience before God and human beings and tell people the truth. Your only hope is Christ. You need a substitute to make atonement for your sin because apart from that, it's going to be resurrection of the unjust. It's not good. Oh, that's not very nice. You're helping people with what they need the most. So I think this is actually helpful for us to see. There, it's the ethical thing to do. How can you escape condemnation? By looking to Christ for your resurrection substitute. Well, we should move on. It says in verse 17, Now after several years, I came to bring alms. I gave financial support, probably financial support for the needy who can't work. 
now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation. We, we previewed that earlier. And to present offerings. A person who's anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, anti-Jerusalem, anti-Israel wouldn't have been doing that. So my actions prove that I'm not, I'm not anti-Jewish. I'm not anti-Israel. I'm not anti-Jerusalem. I'm not anti-temple. I'm supportive. I give, I give money. As a quick footnote, as a quick asterisk, as a quick push pause, some of you might be wondering now, why does, why does he do that? Hasn't he read the book of Hebrews? This might help. It's a, it's a really good and important question, right? Why would you still support the temple when you don't need the temple anymore because of Christ? That's a fair question. It's an important question. But remember, the church is, is infantile, brand new, baby. Remember what somebody told me years and years ago. I've heard it from so many different people. I can't give them credit. I don't know who said it. But if you don't understand the word transition in the book of Acts, you're going to be super confused. This is a this is a transitional time in redemptive history. Things are a changing, right? Jesus prophesied the temple would be destroyed, but it hasn't happened yet. That happens in AD 70. And then if you do read the book of Hebrews, it says don't go back. And so there is an end to this whole thing. But in the meantime, and the Apostle Paul doesn't say that people have to do this, but it's still functioning and he's still a Jew. It's what he does. It is one of those things that makes me go, hmm. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if I would have done that. And I suppose I would have had a clear conscience not to. But I suppose I'm glad that he did it according to God's providence. So he can say, look, the last thing in the world you can accuse me of is being anti-Jewish. I've been there giving offerings, supporting even financially. Then it says in verse 18, if we keep going, but some Jews from Asia, we learned about them in chapter 21, verse 27 some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here. Notice that at least in the translation I'm preaching from, they put a dash to kind of interrupt the idea. I think that's probably a, a good insight. Uh, it's not a Greek dash. <laughs> the translators add these things for effect because they think that's the, the flow of things. But some Jews from Asia, what? Startling, strange, verse 19, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. You know what? While we're at it, I wish they were here too. Because they wouldn't have anything legitimate. In fact, they were problem makers, not me. Verse 20 says, or else let these men themselves say that wrongdoing they have, what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Verse 21, other than I love these three words. Maybe this is going to be the sermon title. This one thing. Ah, ever so quickly. May that be said of you. May that be said of me. This one thing. All the other stuff is empty, but you know what? Let this be known. We were about one thing. I was about one thing. This one thing that I cried out while standing among them. Here it is. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. I'm a bad person for telling you good news. This is crazy. This is insane. This is not just. This is unjust. This isn't right. I told you what you needed. I told you the best news ever. It deals with your biggest problem and I'm a bad person and you want to take my life? 
It does show the perversity of sin and the twisted nature of sin. Even some of these who are part of what I'll call the right religion. Gone badly. This one thing. Hope in resurrection through a substitute whose name is Jesus. The work of Christ for salvation. That's what I'm on trial for. I sincerely hope that I'm never actually on trial for it. I sincerely hope that none of you are never actually on trial for it. People have been though. He is. And certainly in the court of public opinion, sometimes maybe in your own house, you're on trial all the time for telling people good news and you're branded as a bad person. It's what we do. They crucified Paul's Lord for it and they will eventually execute him as well. But it doesn't make sense. Okay, how will Felix rule? Next phase, phase three, it's ever so brief. Verse 22 says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, He's been around. He knows a thing or two about the Jewish Old Testament. He knows a thing or two about what Christians have been saying. Kind of fascinating. He's not converted, we'll see. But he he has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. And so it says, putting them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I'll decide your case. So he knows enough to know that, that the Apostle Paul ought not lose his life here. What he's saying generally seems to make a lot of sense. But he won't pull the trigger, if you will, on setting him free because he wants to keep the peace with the Jews, which is part of his job from Rome. So it's a better political move for him. Interesting. Okay, final phase. Phase number four. Let's call it the holding or the inquiry. Well, maybe let's call it something else. Let's call it the other trial. Actually, the whole thing has been Paul on trial. He's the one who's in prison. But now you know what's going to happen? The Apostle Paul is going to put Felix on trial in a certain sense. This this is good. This is juicy. Verse verse 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Kind of a sort of like a house arrest, not exactly the same. Which is interesting because not long ago we learned about the Apostle Paul's nephew giving him a special message and all that stuff that went on. And we might have thought, how did that work? And I didn't tell you then, commentators say, you know what? As far as feeding prisoners and taking care of them, that was pretty common. Well, actually, this would fit that kind of, that would, this was, it's a biblical text that would complement that idea. Okay, here we go. Felix on trial, verse 24. I like this part. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. If you're looking for beautiful Bible names to name your next daughter, don't pick this one. Okay? Uh, And show your cards to be biblically illiterate. Felix came with his, and if your name is Drusilla, I love you and so does Jesus. (laughs) Got myself in trouble too many times. Felix, 
Felix came down with his wife, Drusilla. Okay, here's a historical note. Drusilla was Felix's third wife. She was the daughter of King Herod Agrippa. We learned about the first. We learned about chapter 12, verse 1. The sister of King Agrippa II. We learned about chapter 25. Felix had seduced Drusilla, who promptly divorced her husband, as he is, the king of Emesa, in order to marry Felix. It's that Drusilla. Felix came with his wife, known for being a knockout, to quote, the way we would say it from what things I read, uh, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about, and here's what I want you to see, faith in Christ. Paul preaches the gospel, faith in Christ. That's another way of saying the gospel, right? You, you Felix and Drusilla, What you need more than anything in life is you need a substitute savior. You need to trust in Christ. Faith in Christ is trusting in Christ. You're trusting in the work of another. So Jesus, in his perfect life of obedience, fulfilling all righteousness, fulfilling the law of God, the obligation of God, and never sinning, then is a substitute for sinners. And he absorbs the wrath of God because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus then is raised from the dead, a hopeful resurrection, right? Positive resurrection for justification. And then he ascends as high priest, claiming his people, right? Forevermore, even though Satan accuses us of being sinful because we are, Jesus claims us as our advocate. And I could go on and on shorthand for what he says here, faith in Christ, faith in Christ Jesus, Felix and Drusilla. If you want hope, you've got to trust in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, the one who grew up in Nazareth, that Jesus but you've got to place your faith. God doesn't believe for you. Faith is a gift, but God doesn't believe for you. You must not trust in yourself or in someone else. You must trust in him for there to be hope. But if you do trust in him, the Bible says there's no condemnation. It's good news, right? Right? We all know this. So here's what I want you to see. He's preaching gospel to them. He's preaching the truth about Jesus to them. But he also, because anytime you're going to preach gospel, it begs the question, well, why would I need to trust in a perfect substitute? Why would I need someone to make atonement for my sins? Why would I need someone to provide me perfect righteousness as a substitute? Why would I need someone to live a perfect life of obedience and to provide righteousness? Why? Well, because of what God's law requires. And Paul preaches law to them as well. That's the next aspect listed here. It says in verse 25, if we go on, That was in verse 24. Now verse 25, notice law. And as he reasoned about righteousness, what God requires, what God's law requires, positively, you must love God, love neighbor, right? As he reasoned about righteousness, Felix and Drusilla, you've got to obey God. We would say later, personally, perfectly, and perpetually, right? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, not on a curve, okay? So, Paul talks with them. He reasons with them. He makes sure they, makes sure they understand ongoingly even about what God requires, God's law. Then go on and self-control. And I think in the context, I might be wrong, but I think in the context that would be, and you not only need to do the right things God requires, you need to avoid doing the things that God forbids. 
right? You have to have self-control. God requires, let's put it this way. God requires perfect self-control. You don't follow your heart. You don't do whatever you want to do because you're made in God's image and you're a creature and you're obligated to obey him. So you must do perfect righteousness. You must have perfect self-control and not follow whatever it is you want to do or what other people want you to do. I think it's law. He reasoned about righteousness and self-control and what fits both of those concepts. The coming judgment. And if you take that out of its context, so we're going to have multiple conversations with Felix and Drusilla. What I need you to understand, Felix, what I need you to understand, Drusilla, is you have to be perfect to go to heaven. Perfect righteousness. Positively. And, and let's put it in the negative, and you have to always and forever say no to the wrong things. And the reason this is really important is because there's a coming judgment day. That's law. He preaches law to them. The gospel wouldn't make any sense if he wasn't reasoning them about reasoning with them about the law. There's a day of reckoning coming. Okay, how about verse 25 where it goes on? Let's keep going. Don't miss this. Right after coming judgment. Maybe I should say it more like a crazy wild-eyed fundamentalist, right? And pound on the pulpit. But you get the idea whether I'm crazy, wild-eyed or not. He's speaking the truth with clarity to them. He's so clear about coming judgment and what God requires. Look after the comma in verse 25. Felix was alarmed. He was ek fabas. He was fearful. He was afraid. He was really afraid. The word is ek fabas. He was terrified. Right? What Paul did when he preached law and gospel is he triggered Felix to the point where he had a panic attack spiritually. Right? He lost his senses. This this is terrifying. This is awful. This is terrible. You caused me to be afraid. How dare you say this in front of me and my wife? Yeah, right? And maybe we don't have to yell and scream like I'm doing right now. But when you tell people the truth about what God requires and that their only hope is faith in Christ, it creates ekphabas, terror. And we think, oh no, that's not good. That's not right. Why in the world would you need Jesus if there wasn't wrath to come? patently reasonable that people would be afraid. If you're not afraid, why in the world would you attack? Why would, why would you attach yourself to Jesus of Nazareth? Doesn't even make a lot of sense. Though the gospel doesn't make sense if the law doesn't make sense. So here's Felix having a spiritual meltdown. Praise God for ekphabas. I love Romans 5.17. It says, the free gift of righteousness. See, it's not like we're like trying to give people bad dreams. It's not like we're trying to cause them to have, you know, apoplexy or whatever, or to have a breakdown. But we want them to be afraid so we can tell them about free righteousness. Free substitutionary law keeping through Christ. 
free gift of righteousness, Romans 5.17. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God as in provided by God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I listened to one preacher and he did say, and I was thankful, he, he was real clear on this. I think it was Eric Alexander. I wish I had a Scottish accent like Eric Alexander. Because everything I would say would sound true. <laughs> he says, it sounds like Paul's been preaching Romans to them. Well, you know what? Since it's the same author, it would make sense. It'd make a lot of sense. Okay, Felix then says in verse 25, and said, so he's afraid and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. So he's afraid, but he's not afraid enough. He still think, thinks he's in charge. He still thinks he's the ultimate in the land. Then something very telling, Luke reveals in verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Weird, huh? Sometimes people want to hear you talk about Jesus because they think you're going to give them money. Okay, we could talk more about that. We won't. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, we just got that stuck in here. He's going to, two years? Felix, who's going to be recalled by Nero in AD 60, two years had elapsed. Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So as he passes the baton, I'm going to do the Jews a favor and I'm just going to leave him there. So let's end on this. Paul faithfully preached the law, what God requires. He faithfully preached the gospel. And from what we see, Felix and Drusilla were wonderfully converted. Not from what we see, they weren't wonderfully converted. And so we have to conclude that the apostle Paul didn't do the right thing by preaching faithfully the law and the gospel, right? Heaven forbid we come to that conclusion. Heaven forbid we come to that conclusion. We should pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for history. Thank you for the history we're living in right now. Help us to take heart that things have not always gone well in a sinful, broken world in the past. And they certainly aren't going well now, nor will they ever until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. In the meantime, may we focus our attention on him. May we focus our attention on proclaiming what is required to people so that they might know that they're desperate and need to look outside of themselves, outside of their religion perhaps, and to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only hope. We're thankful that our hope is in a resurrected Savior whose name is Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.